Welcome everyone to the 1740 podcast. We've got a wonderful guest today in the shape and form of Michael Dudley. Michael Dudley is a librarian from Winnipeg in Canada. He has a very bright and sharp intellectual mind. Uh, until this moment, I've actually never met him, but we've had correspondences going over, over many years. And he has just published a book uh, called The Shakespeare Authorship Question and Philosophy, Knowledge, Rhetoric, Identity. And it is uh, published by Cambridge Scholars. And I have to, before we even go anywhere, just in case Michael ends up to be a rather modest uh, interviewee, I have to say that it is an absolutely excellent book, very, very uh, engrossing. And it covers a whole area of Shakespeare authorship question that is not really covered by other books. So we're not just going over and over. For those who really understand the Shakespeare authorship question, there's plenty in this book that they won't necessarily have come across or even thought about. Uh, so it's a really refreshing new angle. And it's quite intellectual, and it uses quite a lot of words that you may not know what they are, but there's a very useful um, glossary in the back uh, to explain the words. And I just would like to say that it's very, very, very worth the time putting into this book because um, it is a rich, a very rich source of uh, new, exciting ways of thinking about the authorship question. Uh, I'm here with Maudie, as always. Hello. Hello, Maudie. And Michael. Hello, Michael, who's in Canada. Hello, Alexander Maudie. Wonderful Thank to meet you in uh, over Zoom. Um, Lovely to meet you too, Michael. Very nice to meet you. And so let's just plunge straight in. We're going to try and give some description and idea of the book from your perspective. But I think we could start off by asking you what made you feel you needed to write this book i mean i've got I'm, I'm slightly aware that some of the parts of it were already published essays but at some point in your mind yes. you formulated the greater project of of the book right. And, right. Yeah, it, and and what drove you and uh what made you realize that this was a book that needed to be written yeah th thank you very much alexander uh it it did evolve over about a decade and uh, as as readers will see in the introduction, my my interest goes back to the late 1980s uh, when I first encountered uh, the mysterious William Shakespeare, the Myth and the Reality by Charlton Ogburn Jr. Uh, and I actually helped organize a tour of uh, Charles Beauclerc, uh, Earl of Burford at the time. So I was really engaged with this. This is back in 1993. Uh, but there was a long period where I wasn't uh, active in the question. Uh, I, I, at the time, I had completed a master's degree in library science, but I went on to get a master's degree in city planning as well from uh, 1998 to 2000. Uh, worked in urban policy research for 11 years at the Institute of Urban Studies um, at the University of Winnipeg where I'm now employed as a librarian for the last uh, 11 years. But it was about, uh, when I was hired as a librarian, I was covering um, indigenous studies at the time. And as I was reading uh, literature concerning uh, indigenous knowledge and, uh, and Western knowledge and, and the, what's, what's called you know, decolonization and indigenization in the academy, I was coming across these references in the literature to the idea of the genius, the natural genius of the West. And it just kind of occurred to me that the, the rhetoric around the natural genius of the West just seemed so similar to the rhetoric uh, in Shakespeare biography. And so my first paper uh, for uh, Brief Chronicles uh, was looking at, at this rhetoric. Um, and that was published... So hang on, let, let, could, could you explain to the... To the listeners, what Brief, Brief Chronicles is. Sorry, and, um, yes, it's, a, it's, it's one of the journals published by the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship uh, in the United States, uh, edited by Roger Strittmatter. Uh, and then two years later, uh, I thought it would be interesting to look at uh, academic libraries' collections uh, with with authorship literature and, you know, the, the sense of... Um, imbalance uh, about 
how the Stratfordian view is so much more recognized in university collections than uh, post-Stratfordian, Oxfordian literature. So I did an analysis of uh, holdings in Canadian libraries and found, of course, great disparities. And I also looked at the subject headings that the Library of Congress uses to describe the literature. Um, uh, then two years after that, I, I did an analysis of um, the how I became an Oxfordian essays published by the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship on their website. Um, that's now chapter 10 in this book. Uh, in 2019, there was a call for papers for a, an edited collection on academic freedom. And I thought, okay, yes, let's look at the authorship question from a perspective of academic freedom. And so that was published in 2020 in a book called uh, Teaching and Learning Practices for Academic Freedom. And then in 2020, uh, I came across a reference to um, belief ethics, mostly forgotten British philosopher and mathematician, William Hinton Clifford and his idea of belief ethics, that it is wrong everywhere always for anyone to believe anything without evidence. And of course that really struck a chord that this is of course what Stratfordians are doing. And so I proposed that as an article for the Oxfordian, another peer reviewed journal from the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. So it was about that time that I realized, you know, I and in addition, I've written many book review essays. Uh, I wrote an article for American Libraries magazine for their website in 2016 about the first folio tour. So I had this large collection of literature. And as an academic librarian, uh, we are entitled to sabbaticals or research leaves. And so in, in late 2020, 20, early 2021, I began to think about, I could compile all of my publications into a book. And I proposed that to the university. Um, I also sent a proposal to Cambridge scholars to have, uh, to see if they'd be interested in publishing it as a book. And they accepted it, but it was a very different form at the time. It was strictly just an edited collection. I thought I could write a couple of chapters to kind of give it shape. But then once my leave was approved in late 2021, I knew I had a whole year before my leave started so that I, uh, I had that year to think more about this and to basically do a deep dive into the literature of epistemology. And the book began to take you know, rather different shape. Um, Michael, in one, can I ask yeah. you that in one of your articles, um, you mentioned that as, an, as a librarian starting out, you realized that you hadn't ever read a Shakespeare biography. What were your first right. reactions after reading about Shakespeare's life? Well, it was actually, I, I did an undergraduate degree in theater in, in acting. And our third year was entirely devoted to Shakespeare and performance. And so, you know, we, we were, you know, deeply, uh, a deep dive into Shakespeare for a whole year. And we never, I never read a biography as an acting student. And it was only when I was working in public libraries. And so I quite naively, as a Stratfordian, went to the shelf and said, oh, here's this big, thick biography of Shakespeare called The Mysterious William Shakespeare, The Myth and the Reality. Hey, I should have read this when I was in school. And uh, took that home and was completely shocked to find out that it was an Oxfordian book and it introduced me to the authorship question. So I really stumbled into it. Well, that's uh, brilliant to, 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 get, to, to, get, to do it that way around. I mean, most, yeah. people, most people pick up a standard Stratfordian biography right. and they realize there's something very hollow, very missing, oh, yeah. very strange yeah. about it. Mm -hmm. And by degrees, they worm their way through to a book about uh, Shakespeare being a pseudonym. Whereas it right. seems you picked up one thinking you were going to, <laughs> going to read a standard biography, went straight in. Yeah. But it did, I, I can't, I mean, I've got a book here and I read it some time ago, but I can't remember what page exactly you get to before you're told that um, it, it's a pseudonym. Is that page one? <laughs> well, I think pretty much page one, he, he says yeah, yeah. That, that it's a complete, you know, is historical mistake. Yeah. Um, and is is that when you decided that Oxford for you was the right candidate? Oh, yeah, I was totally convinced uh, when I finished the book that, that Oxford was was Shakespeare. 
One one of the things about your book, well, the, the key thing it's in it's in the title is it's uh, mm-hmm. the Shakespeare authorship question and philosophy. Yeah. Um, now clearly philosophy is a passion of yours because um, you you obviously know a lot about it. It's it's it, it's very clear reading your book that you're someone who's deeply immersed in philosophy, epistemology, uh, that is to say, the, the the various theories of knowledge. And one of the things you're writing about here is is knowledge. How do we know what we know? Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you can you talk a little bit about your your passion for philosophy and how you found what seems to me a very natural fit uh, between philosophy and the authorship question? Well, I, I don't have a degree in philosophy. Uh, so like I said, I've got uh, master's degrees in library science and city planning. But what I think, and I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked that because I actually, in an earlier draft of the book, had a section about my background in librarianship and planning as relevant to you know the insight I was bringing to this, is that both librarianship and city planning, are they're both concerned with knowledge uh, librarianship is about organizing knowledge and making it accessible to others. Planning is about turning knowledge into action. And both professions are making claims to expertise about knowledge. And they're both doing it in the public realm. They're both in, involved in some way in, in shaping society. But with both of these professions, you know, that I've been involved in for over 30 years between the two, they are both, they both have a lot of theory that, that's called theoretical reflexivity, where you're theorizing not just about the object of your profession, i.e., you know, information for librarianship and, and human settlements for planning, but you're also theorizing about your own relationship as a practitioner to that object of your profession and also to your obligations to society your ethical obligations and the potential to do great harm if you don't do this kind of reflection. So with with librarianship, you have the power to name things, to organize knowledge, to classify it, to give it indexing access points. And if you give these names that are non-intuitive, that are pejorative, judgmental, uh, or inaccurate, People aren't going to discover that information. The knowledge doesn't get reproduced. It can't contribute to new knowledge. And this is one of the things that I've explored in terms of the authorship question, is the pejorative nature, the you know marginalization of that topic. And then in planning that if you aren't, if, if you're making assumptions that you are purely objective, that you're, you're going to obtain perfect knowledge, and you don't actually have, you don't, exercise your duty to inquire into the conditions where the with the people who actually live there you're going to you know create some planning disasters uh and so both of these professions have invested a lot of theory into your ethical commitments to society and bringing that insight to the authorship question i realized that that is completely absent from stratfordian biography uh, and and scholarship is that they are presenting uh, these repeated mythologies as fact without theorizing about it. Yes, and then your your you, sorry to interrupt you. Your your book fo- follows quite hard on the heels of a very interesting book by Elizabeth Winkler called Shakespeare Was a Woman yes. and Other yes. Heresies. And mm-hmm. there are some similarities in your book. I mean, both both books express the deep shock at the uh, appalling attitudes that are being presented by the standard Stratfordian academics uh, on this subject. Uh, having said that, they're very, they're, they're very different books in, in, in many ways, but it, it's mm-hmm. very interesting to see. Have you read that book? It's interesting to see how well, how, how the two do sort of... Yeah. Um, and and I, do, I do quote from it. Uh, Elizabeth was actually kind enough to send me a copy of her book while I was still working on mine. So I was able to uh, quote from it in a few key places. But yeah, I, I think there, there's so much ethical uh, problems with, you know, the pure exercise, the exercise of pure imagination by a biographer. Uh, and as Simon Schoenbaum pointed out, you know, that the leap motif of his book, Shakespeare's Lives. Was- uh, Samuel Schoenbaum. Samuel. Samuel sorry. Yeah. 
Shakespeare's lives was that um, that the leitmotif of the book was the self-projection of biographers of their own personality onto Shakespeare. Uh, and, and so what I wanted to do, especially with chapter two, was if they're not going to theorize about their, their own relationship to their object of study, then I'm going to do that for them. So theorizing about imagination, about genius, about the idealism uh, that is so evident in, in the scholarship. You also mentioned in a previous article that once the essayists have read about Oxford as Shakespeare and come to accept him as the author, this completely changes their experience of the plays and poems right. and has right. a deeply rewarding and transcendent effect upon them. Can you detail for our listeners just how this understanding brings these plays to life once you know who the real author is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, a fascinating process to go through of analysing the how I became an Oxfordian essays. The, the philosophical, overall philosophical framework for the book is pragmatism. Uh, and pragmatism asks, what difference does it make if one theory or another obtains? Um, what is the actual cash value of that theory? And with the, the analysis of the How I Became an Oxfordian essays, you see you know, the, 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 the quotes that I pulled out of these where the, the essayists weren't making sense of the plays. You know, uh, it just, the, the play didn't make any sense. They weren't connecting with it. Uh, they struggled teaching it for those who were educators. But once they encountered Oxford, everything began to fall into place. Things made sense. But also I thought most significant is that the essayists were able to connect many of them on an emotional, empathetic level, that they are able to empathize with the author in a way that simply isn't possible with the Stratfordian model, because he is this remote godlike figure. Um, so I, I, I think with with that, that's in chapter ten. Uh, I think you you end up seeing this incredible, as William James, the philosopher, the pragmatist, would put it, a cash value of uh, real world consequences. Uh, of that model. And can you just explain to our uh, listeners who might not know what you mm. mean by by the how I became an Oxfordian mm. essays? What, what, oh, yeah, what are I'm these? Sorry. Yeah, uh, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship began publishing these in 2015, I believe. So they solicited 500 word essays from members on their process of discovery. Uh, and by the time I started writing this article in 2017, there were there were 50 essays on the website, my own included, but of course I didn't include it in my analysis. Um, so it was very concise snapshots of people's uh, lived experience. Uh, and so what the what that chapter is, uh, methodologically, it's referred to as phenomenology. So how does a thing appear to a person? How do they explain? their experience of that, that experience. Do you think there are certain people who are predisposed to wanting the truth for, mm -hmm. for whatever whatever truth is? And it's often mm -hmm. quite a different, difficult thing for philosophers to pin down what truth is. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, speaking from my own experience, and I wouldn't be surprised if you're similar in Maudie too, that we're, we're all rather indignant that there seems to be a uh, if not a lie, a massive misunderstanding that is protected, whatever it is, it's wrong and it does not coincide with truth. And I think that a lot of Oxfordians are, are, are very driven by this idea that you cannot allow this mess uh, to yeah. stay out there. We we have to put it right as, as a deep inner necessity because we've spotted it, we know it's wrong, we know the truth lies out there and we're driven mm -hmm. by that. Did, did Was that something that cropped up a lot in the in the essays of um how i became an oxfordian uh, oh yeah certainly um and what one thing i also explain in the chapter is that i i based this analysis on the work my my mother's doctoral work in the 1980s uh, she wrote her dissertation on the lived experience of paradigm shifts and it's quite surprising you know that there, there really isn't anything else out there as far as i could tell where anyone did that kind of analysis about, even though, you know, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he talks about the, the, 
he mentions the, the lightning flash that scientists experience when they change their perspective on their field. Um, and so it was it was really you know perfect for me because I could just take her findings and map them out on the the, the essays and and code them accordingly. Uh, but one of the things she identified in her completely different paradigm shift, but it was the exposure to other cultures that she found significant in her participants that they they didn't remain within the environments that they had grown up with. They traveled. Uh, they they learned other languages. They they exposed themselves to other cultures, and what what I found in most of the Oxfordian essays is that only a couple of them were from English literature departments or or backgrounds. That m- most of them were from all kinds of different fields and disciplines, uh, and those perspectives that they brought uh, informed their their journey from believing in the Stratford man to uh, being deeply dissatisfied and then discovering Oxford. Yes, but, but if we're being honest, I mean, I, I accept that, that that answer. It's a very interesting observation. But the truth of the matter is that the fallacy of the Stratford story is really, to us, extremely obvious. You know, mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't take more than half an hour to explain oh, yeah. to someone of average above average or average intelligence right. that the, the the Stratford story is wrong right so so what's what is the problem in your view why is it why is it why are we so stuck for so right. long with this wrong story when it's so easy and so plain to see what tosh it is well this this was the motivating question that i identify in in the introduction is 30 years ago when i was doing that tour with with Charles Burford, this high school student came up afterwards and she asked, why would anybody believe it? And because it is, it's just so obvious. I So I, I encountered a couple of things as I was on my research leave and, and assembling the book. Uh, one is a German-American philosopher, uh, Eric Vogelin. And, and he wrote a couple of very insightful papers in the early 1970s, one called The Eclipse of Reality, and another one, Hegel, A Study in Sorcery. And he was very critical of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel uh, and, his, and his dialectic. And I know this is getting, may seem it's getting into the weeds a bit, but uh, what, what Vogelin was concerned with was you know, hyper-individualism and idealism and utopianism, and that that can lead people to create for themselves what he called a second reality that eclipses first reality. And by first reality, he's referring to our shared reality where we have criteria for judging knowledge and testing knowledge and disproving theories. Uh, Philosopher of science, Karl Popper said, we should be able to disprove our theories and falsify them. And and so Vogelin was talking about second realities, and what he said about them is that they have to, first of all, appear like they are functioning in first reality. But secondly, and most importantly, is that they have to escape control and judgment by the criteria of first reality. And I thought that this was a perfect description of Stratfordian biography, is that it's trying to pass itself off as the epitome of scholarship, the, the height of the, of the academy, uh, while at the same time trying to escape the basic you know, attempt to falsify, to question, uh, to, to open it up to, to inquiry. Uh, mm-hmm. So my interest really was, first of all, in the first part of this book, uh, the first of three parts, is testing the Shakespeare as Shakespeare model to these criteria of knowledge, justification, and truth. But I think one of the things that that I found that really clarified for me why it's so intractable about this second reality is that uh, Hegel's dialectic, we most are maybe familiar with the idea of dialectical reasoning where it's um, you have a, a thesis and then you have its opposite, an antithesis, and then out of that, you get a synthesis of a bit of both. But Hegel's dialectic was quite different. What he was saying is that you take 
a, a first principle, an abstract idea, and then you put it in collision with its opposite. And then what happens is a process of what he called Aufhaven, which in English translates to sublation. And what that means is you're abolishing those terms and you're lifting them up and you're preserving them. And his example was being a nothing. And then through Aufhaven, it becomes becoming. And I, it looks a lot easier on the page, but the idea that you collide two opposites to create something completely new. And in the process, mm -hmm. you abolish the significance of those two things. So William Shakespeare, the author, is collided with William Shakespeare, the historic individual. These two terms are then sublated. They are abolished and uplifted and preserved as William Shakespeare, the bard of Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, this is, a, this is a, a, a dialectical construction. And what makes it so difficult then to debate Stratfordians about this is that this, this new creation emerging from the dialectic exists in a second reality. It's immune to criteria of first reality. It can't be uh, you know, subjected to the same rules of, of rationality because it exists in its own world. And, and in, the, in the meantime, the meaning of, of Shakespeare and Shakespeare are essentially erased. So that's... Yeah. Do you think theory. that the original muddlers... Yeah, it's... Going, it's right, going right back into the 16th, 17th centuries, the original muddlers who, who left this mess for us, yes. that they were well aware of what a complicated mess they were leaving, that it mm -hmm. would be difficult for people to unpick this glibly that you need to sit down and concentrate a little bit to get past the first the second the third hurdle to understand right. what, what how tightly knit this mm -hmm. this this jersey is mm -hmm. so i think you know the for the last couple of centuries since uh charles knight's first book length biography of of shakespeare we've been you know in in the west we've we've had this this huge influence of Hegelian philosophy, uh, you know that we live under, as some philosophers say, uh, the influence of Hegel's ghost, uh, which is the uh, which I'm referencing in in chapter two here, where we we um, we do this kind of dialectical collision of of contradictory ideas uh, all the time, and and uh, in in idealistic philosophies, then create these second realities, which is what I think Stratfordianism. Uh, is and how do you feel that the Oxfordian movement has changed since you first came aboard? And do you think mm. do you think Oxfordianism is becoming more mainstream now? Uh, well, I think uh, in the last few years, the uh, I th it's it's wonderful to see uh, you know the Devere Society, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, um, and the impact that they've had you know, through social media and YouTube, uh, I think, uh, and that's one of the other things that I've mentioned in, um, in one of the chapters here is, is the, uh, the ability to, to extend reach beyond books. You know, when I first joined at which at the time was the Shakespeare Oxford society, uh, in the early nineties, you know, I received a paper newsletter in the mail, uh, and, if you were to do research into this field, you know, you'd have to go to England, you'd have to go into the archives yourself. And now we've got digital archives, we've got social media, we've got databases, it's extraordinary the kind of research we're able to do from our living rooms. And so yeah, I think we've really extended our reach uh, into the culture. Um, I've got a video of my how I became an Oxfordian um, essay analysis last i looked it's been viewed 20,000 times so wow. yeah i think i think we're having a positive effect we definitely are and i think probably worrying the establishment um mm -hmm. a little bit yeah. aren't you getting that view um i saw a piece of news oh, come yeah. through on one of the oxfordian feeds yesterday uh or was it the day before very recently uh saying that on the shakespeare uh, authorship trust site 
they're now admitting that scholars are fighting over whether those signatures, the so-called six signatures of William Shakespeare Stratford, whether they were actually written in his hand. Now, as you and I mm. know, if they weren't written in his hand, that is extremely bad news for the Stratfordians yeah. because yeah. It, it makes the obvious implication that he was unable to write his own signature and that he had to mm. get a clerk to represent it mm. for him. Now, mm -hmm. now the Oxfordians, as you're well aware, have uh, written, and even before them, the Baconians, written extremely well on this subject, done some deep dive researches into those signatures. And up to now, they seem to be completely ignored by the mm -hmm. establishment who just go on right. saying, well, he signed these things. But right. they've suddenly put this up on the Shakespeare uh, birthplace trust website. Mm, mm. Now that that these are little indications, they may be small things, but things are to me definitely moving, and they're having to back off in certain areas and places. And, and also how the the new Oxford Shakespeare basing its entire uh, the edited uh, you know Gary Taylor and, and company that it's a all collaboration, and that you know up to thirty eight percent of the canon was written by eleven other people. Like now we're we're getting into a mainstream proposition of of group authorship, which was a Baconian idea. So the mainstream is shifting. There's no longer one Stratfordian view. Yeah. So you're you're talking about uh, I think it was 2017. Was about five years ago. Uh, yeah. The new big invested project from the Oxford University Press, which is essentially mm. the new edition of Shakespeare, and and they, in in that they put out a whole sub volume yes. uh, about the authorship, in which, as as you point out, they're now claiming, and this is twenty three different scholars all getting together, they're now yeah. claiming that uh, nearly forty percent of Shakespeare is not written by anyone called Shakespeare, <laughs> written yeah. by people called completely different things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but of course, they, they of course, they're nowhere near saying one of those authors could have been the Earl of Oxford. Nowhere no. near. So they, they just want to pull in at this stage. But it's a big move, as you say. But at this stage, they want to pull in people like Marlowe or other right. sort of jobbing playwrights who are around at the time. They want to say they're yeah. part of the mix. Uh, right. But it's it, it, it's not a big jump now to, to start saying, well, maybe the Earl of Oxford was at the forefront of this. Maybe mm -hmm. there were other hands. Mm -hmm. um anyway let, let, let's talk a little bit more uh, about your book because i want to i want the listeners to to get a sense of it, it and i feel that our conversation so far you've said very very interesting things but it's not it's not a diffuse strand of lots of uh, unrelated points and i get the strong feeling with this book that however it came about that it came about through different essays may be but it but to me it it has a very sort of focused form to it that there's a real sense that uh, that there's a heart to this book um i'm going to give you the unfair task of 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 perhaps trying to describe to the to, to, to those listening what that heart is what what pulls all of these strands together and makes it yes. such a unified book yeah thank you i'm really glad to hear you Say that it that it comes across as a unified argument, because like you know the writ, these articles written years apart and then in all kinds of different orders, but it was really you know discovering that Eric Vogelin perspective on first and second realities that really cemented for me that I've got three parts then. So part one is is applying these criteria of first reality to the Shakespeare as Shakespeare model, and I'm comparing it to the Oxford as Shakespeare model. And what I think Stratfordians don't um, are, aren't upfront about, you know, when they make these comparisons, is that the Shakespeare Shakespeare model is hypothesizing public open authorship, and that Shakespeare was known as Shakespeare at the time. Of course, they don't put it that way because uh, they don't admit a difference in names. The Oxford as Shakespeare model is about secret authorship and only insiders knowing it, and these two different scenarios are going to have resulted in entirely different kinds of, of evidence that we would then find today. Um, so comparing them is, is not straightforward. But the first, the first part, part one, is the criteria of first reality. Having failed these tests, the Shakespeare-Shakespeare model, part two is, well, how is this model maintained and defended? So part two is all about rhetoric. And so chapter six, in part two is about the rhetoric of empire uh, and the natural genius of Shakespeare and the natural genius of the West and the, the, the mutually supporting uh, character 
of this conception and how Shakespeare, the author, gets removed from history because of this mythologizing. Uh, chapter seven looks at the invidious, hostile rhetoric that Stratfordians subject doubters to. And that is led off by, you know, the terrible reception that Elizabeth Winkler received in 2019 with her Atlantic article. Uh, and so all of this mischaracterization and ad hominem attacks uh, are, are demonstrated in that, that chapter, which was published in that book on academic freedom. I then look at the rhetoric used in the mass media. So forms of public persuasion uh, and how the, the film Anonymous uh, was lambasted uh, in, in the press. Um, and I use the uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, Edward Herman model, the propaganda model of news and how uh, public persuasion uh, in, in major media can serve to marginalize perspectives. And the chapter after that, I look at logical fallacies that I identified in, in a book review essay I wrote on the definitive Shakespeare companion and the chapter on the authorship question. So part two then is that this second reality is maintained through language, through rhetoric, through ideology. Part three, identity, is can we reclaim a Shakespearean first reality? Um, and we lead off then with the, with the How I Became an Oxfordian essays and grounding it in that lived experience, the pragmatic recognition of the, the cash value of the Oxfordian model on understanding the canon and the, the impact it has on people's lives. Uh, in chapter 11, I draw all of these theories together uh, in a series of tables and point out that we're not just comparing authorial models here, that these are entirely different worldviews between the Stratfordian and the Oxfordian view. It's a completely different view of reality. It's a different view of um, the relationship of the scholar to society. Uh, the different different forms of reasoning, like on every level, they're just incompatible, which led me to realize, you know, I just don't think there's much point in having conventional authorship debates at this point, because we are operating in these different realities. I was just going to ask you, actually, have you had any entertaining interactions with Stratfordians in the past or over your book? Uh, no, I, I haven't. I mean, I've certainly, you know, read comments on some of my YouTube videos, uh, that were <laughs> rather negative. I haven't had any kind of encounter with other faculty at the University of Winnipeg. They've been, you know, the ones I've talked to have been receptive. I've been invited to the theater department to, to present on the authorship question. Um, so yeah, the, it, just in terms of interpersonal, uh, encounters, no. But now that I have a book, the reviews, uh, if they come, or there, there may be some hostile ones. Well, well, as you know, there's a rather bizarre organization called Ox Fraud. Yes. Um, that tends to chase people down, uh, particularly through the the comments section of Amazon and things like that. And mm -hmm. one uh, is pretty convinced. I'm certainly convinced that they are paid operatives. Mm. Um, because there's quite a lot of money on the other side of this argument and that they are paid to blog and post and try and denounce anyone mm -hmm. with Oxfordian views. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, if you do engage with them, which I don't strongly recommend, I used to in my yeah, early yes. days, but yeah. if you engage with them and start going off topic and just mm -hmm. pushing and pushing the idea that Shakespeare of Stratford is wrong, they go into a form of meltdown because I think yeah. what they're paid to do is argue about Oxford and only Oxford. And if no. you don't keep on topic of Oxford, they 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 they, <laughs> they tremble and get rather weird. But I, I suspect you will find, and I haven't I haven't checked this out. You've probably been looking at it. Have reviews started appearing? Uh, readers' reviews started appearing on the Amazon um, I, website, place like that. I checked last week, and there was nothing. Um, I should say the one exception is in 2016 or 2015, I published an article I mentioned for American libraries uh, for their website about the first folio tour. And it was flooded with comments. I think there were like 700 comments. The editor said they hadn't received 
that was the most comments they'd ever received on any story they'd ever published online. And a lot of it was, you know, Oxfraud type um, people piling on it. And, you know, I tried to engage them, uh, you know, in a, in a good faith kind of way, but eventually I, ha I had to give up. I think you do have to give up because there isn't good faith on the other side. They, they will come in uh, posing as someone with a view, but they won't actually engage properly with arguments. And, and once again, I think that they are on a mission yeah. uh, to discredit, if they can, the Oxfordian line. But my view is we must allow them to speak as much as we want them to speak. And sure. we must allow those people of whom you complain bitterly in your book, that's the academics, to keep mouthing off because I think the whole world is getting more attuned to what we call BS or maybe what Canadians call BS oh, yeah. more than we call BS and, and yeah. just let them talk. And the, mm -hmm. the averagely intelligent person who comes to this afresh is, is starting to notice that certain people who talk in a certain way, certain people who just insult their opponents uh, are, are invariably the ones in the wrong, the ones who have something to hide. And so right. let them do the business, because I think uh, you'll find a lot of Oxfordians became Oxfordians when they read the BS that the Stratfordians had written in the first place. Yeah, well, the um, the, the book concludes with the discussion about uh, another recent book by Julia Galef uh, called The Scout Mindset. And and she compares uh, you know, the, these metaphors of the scout who's who's motivated by wanting the right answer and wanting to map out exactly, you know, what the information landscape looks like to, to get to that right answer. And what she calls the soldier mindset, which is all about, you know, motivated reasoning and wanting to defend whatever position you have, because it's so tightly connected with your identity. Um, but the scout mindset is you hold your identity lightly, as it regards your beliefs, and you'll be willing, more willing than to change your beliefs when you have new information uh, and and don't feel so defensive about it. But this is definitely, I think, what the, the Stratfordians are operating in this, uh, this soldier uh, mode, for sure. And, There's a and, very uh, ignorant view yeah. held by many, many, many people that their opinions are inextricably attached to their identities. Mm -hmm. And that to insult their opinions or even to contradict their opinions is to insult them personally. And people need to get over that. They need to realize that opinions yes. are hypostatic yeah. ideas that are there to be changed when better evidence comes forth. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that's why a lot of people are, are very stuck here because they've pinned their colors to that mast. It is them. It is their identity. And if you mm -hmm. tell them they've got it wrong, uh, yeah. they get personally very hurt. And, and, and I think this particularly applies, I mean, it, as you know, it applies a lot to political opinions, but it, it particularly applies to the Shakespeare authorship problem because Shakespeare was such an empty vessel that we don't have uh, a great right. biography of, about him so that people who love those Shakespeare plays, who've been to see them or read them, or they fill themselves yes. and their imaginations with the character yes. they think he is, and that's an invention mm -hmm. of themselves. So you tell exactly. them they're wrong, yeah. you've insulted them. Does that mm -hmm. does that ring true to you? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, one of the passages that I found about, about idealism, uh, that um, uh, Hegelian idealism is that, you know, the looking at the, the subject yourself, the knower, and the object, the thing that you're, you're studying, uh, looking at them as this single unity that you're with you're making that thing insubstantial. You're withdrawing substance from it and investing it into yourself. Uh, and, and that is, is just so much about what we, we see with, with uh, Stratfordian biographers. Uh, Stephen Greenblatt was, was criticized with Will in the World that he seemed to be projecting his own personality uh, onto uh, Shakespeare. Uh, Richard Wagaman, a psychiatrist who uh, has written so much about the psychopathology of Stratfordianism also says that that they Stratfordians do seem to take any criticism of the mythology as an attack on themselves personally because of that investment. What advice would you give uh, someone starting out on their authorship journey? I think we have a few mm. listeners that are just starting out. 
Well, there, you know, Elizabeth Winkler's book is is a great place to start. Um, Shakespeare by another name by, you know, Margot, formerly Mark Anderson, is is a, a wonderful book as well. Um, I'm really excited for Ger Utag's uh, upcoming book, The Battle for Shakespeare's Identity, which is published in Norwegian and seems to be making a big hit. Um, I was very honored that he wrote the foreword for my book. Uh, and he sent me an early English translation, which I've read. And I think, you know, his book is, may well be kind of the standard text on just the 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 facts of the debate and all of the the theories uh, for some time he's done basically an encyclopedic job of uh, of uh, tackling the authorship question so i hope that gets published in english soon yes now now so ger utag is is a is a in his own country in norway is a very distinguished uh poet and literary critic and he's a very clever man, and and he's written an absolutely stupendous um, introduction to your book. Has he told you that 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 his book will appear in English or or not? Well, he he has submitted it to an English publisher. Great. Um, it's it's hopefully and we're fingers crossed. And Good. and he says yes. hello, by the way. <laughs> well, hello to him. No, he's a, he's a great man. One one bumps into him occasionally because he comes to uh, authorship conferences and things like that. He comes over to England. I saw him at uh, Hatfield recently, uh, mm. and no, he he's a terrific guy, and 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 it's it's wonderful to think that his work will, at very minimum, will will spread across Scandinavia and and those parts and if he can get it translated not only into English but into German possibly and French and things like that we're, we're really getting the the ball rolling what, what what I've discovered what I seem to have noticed is that countries which aren't hugely knowledgeable about the Shakespeare authorship question tend to have one really good author who comes up with an idea and then the whole mm. country, insofar as there is an anti-Stratfordian movement, uh, goes with that. So, for instance, in Russia, we had this man called uh, Gilolov, uh, who mm. said that Shakespeare was the Earl of Rutland. So mm. if you find a Russian anti-Stratfordian, they'll be, they will be mm. a Rutlander uh, equally. Mm. There's the man, a very distinguished scholar back in the uh, 1919, I think he first published, uh, called Abel Lefranc in France, uh, who said that the Earl of Derby was Shakespeare. And if you can find yourself a French anti-Stratfordian, they're probably Derbyites. Mm. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and I think that Oxford, who, as we all know, has by far the strongest case and by far the biggest following in the English-speaking world, um, has been slightly slow to catch on in, in continental Europe and places where English isn't the first language. Is that something you've noticed? I, I hadn't been aware of that. No. Well, anyway, I, I think I, I, as far as I'm aware, that gear. His book is not going to be, or isn't, it's already done. It's not overtly Oxfordian, is it? Uh, he he does spend a good deal of time. He goes through all of the candidates in, in considerable detail, but the Oxford section is the largest. So Good. Uh, and, and he does a really wonderful summary of, of the case for Oxford. Yeah. And he gets into some of the, the very cryptic stuff um, along the lines of all the wonderful work that you've done on YouTube, Alexander. Um as well he has a whole appendix on, well, on that's nice of you to say that because i know that some people even very committed oxfordians don't really like ciphering work and i and i have to mm. say that that i was dragged into this kicking and screaming because it was something i didn't really want to do i'd seen some of the baconian attempts right and right. taken them seriously enough to read them slowly and carefully and try and understand what they were saying mm -hmm. and and i thought they were very often ridiculous Mm -hmm. um, but once I realized there was this connection between the hermetism uh, mm -hmm. and the sort of proto-Freemasonic world and the Shakespeare authorship cover-up mm -hmm. and that this stuff had to come out, we had to show it. And I know I lost a few of my Oxfordian friends who said, oh, you shouldn't be going there. This this is the area mm -hmm. of ridicule. But mm -hmm. I I like to pretend to myself at least that we're on a much much higher level of encipherment than we than we've ever been before with baconians i mean this is stuff mm. oh, that yeah. is very 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 difficult to refute i mm -hmm. mean you're, you're you're just left with this hope that it's all coincidence and and you only have to look at some of the things that have been unearthed now uh, yeah. to show that the mathematical chances of coincidence i'm talking about uh the dedication to the sonnets for instance which 
Every, I mean, people have known for years and years and years, or sensed for years and years that there's something encrypted there. It, it, yeah. it, it just looked too weird not to to have been a natural dedication. Mm-hmm. And I think we've now unraveled all that. We've got to the bottom oh, yeah. of it. Um, awesome. And and for those like you, Michael, I'm glad you say that because you're you're the sort of person who I feel could have turned against it or gone with it. But given mm. that you've got a massive brain, and I'm very very <laughs> pleased that you've committed some of your brain space to looking at this, and you mm. can see that it is it is really serious stuff. And it mm. if if you're prepared to go down that route. It, mm-hmm. it 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 unlocks the authorship question. I'm not saying it's the only way to unlock it, but right. but if if you're prepared to go down there, it's, it's a massive key to opening it up. Um, hey, look, I think your book is beautifully produced uh, by Cambridge scholars. It, it it's it's very good news to me that Cambridge scholars is now dipping its toe, actually more than its toe. I've got a I've got something saying that it's doing another authorship questioning book that's coming oh. out this month this week this month very soon cool and they did um, bellamy's stuff on anagram so they're they're you know they're a good academic publisher and and they're now opening the way for people mm-hmm. such as you who have quite an academic mind uh to be able to express yourself through decent a- uh, academic publications so it's really good news it, it, it's a lovely book and um, I Thank really, you. I really, really recommend it to anyone who's listening, uh, as 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 a solid mm-hmm. mine of mm-hmm. wonderful information. Now, thank you, Michael. Before I let you go, um, can you tell us how we can get hold of you? What some of your other activities are? You mentioned a bit of YouTubing. Um, how how we can find out more other than your your book about you and your work? Oh well, uh, I. At the University of Winnipeg, where I work, I've got a staff page where I list all of my publications. Uh, and I've got a, a number of library guides, including a guide to the, uh, it's a Shakespeare studies library guide. And it includes a tab on authorship at, at the University of Winnipeg library homepage. So um, I can I can give you the links uh, that that you if if we can uh, we can uh, post it can't we Yeah we can put that in the show notes that would be great thank okay. you Okay yeah for sure Just to say uh, thank you so much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and thank we hope you so that you'll much. come on with us again soon And if you've enjoyed the show please share it with your friends and you can find us on Spotify Amazon Music Podbean Apple Podcasts Deezer and we will soon be on YouTube um, thank you very much, Alexander, as always. Thank you, Maudie. And thank people you. can subscribe, can't they, on any of those ones? Yes, you can subscribe, like, share, and anything you can. Twitter, retweet. We're on all the social media platforms as well. Perfect. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, Michael. I'll just remind Wonderful. you one thank more so time much. of this book. It's called The Shakespeare Authorship Question and Philosophy, Knowledge, Rhetoric, Identity by Michael Quinn Dudley. And I presume you can buy it on Amazon and anywhere else. And I can't recommend it strongly enough. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Alexander and Naughty. Take care.